you'd like to follow along with us, in just a moment we're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. I do not believe that most people start out designed to fail. No one is moving through life in effect saying, I hope I'm never successful. I hope that everything I do, I will fail at. But the fact of the matter is that we're not perfect. And so oftentimes we think of the fact that there are so many people who make bold statements of how they're going to react in life. You know, if this were to happen to me, here's exactly what I would do. You know, our culture today, especially it seems in the media, deals with that. Uh, something is said about a coach in football or basketball or something like that. Maybe it's a politician. Maybe it's someone whose business has failed. And someone says, well, if it were me, here's what I would do. And there always seems to be those individuals out there who, in their mind, I know the answer. If I were in that circumstance, I would know exactly what I need to do. But the problem is not knowing what you should do. The problem comes about in being able to do it at the right time. We want to think about the reaction that the disciples had to our Lord's revealing to, him, to them what was going to happen to him. So uh, we've just partaken of the Lord's Supper. In Matthew 26, Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper with the elements of the Passover feast. And then they go out of the place where they were at. They go out into the Mount of Olives and they sing a hymn. And after they've done this, it says in verse 31, Jesus saith unto them, all ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. But after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. Peter answered and said unto him, Though all should be offended because of thee, yet will I never be offended. Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, that this night before the cock crow thou shalt deny me thrice. Peter said unto him, Though I should die with thee, yet will I not deny thee. Likewise also said all the disciples. First Peter, and then all of them affirm their allegiance to him. We will stick with you no matter what happens. And he said, Well, they're going to hurt me. They're going to harm me. He, he said, it's been said that they will smite the shepherd. Now, the term we have there for being offended in verse 31 and then in verse 33 means to fall back or literally to scatter. And of course, that's exactly what ended up happening in verse 56. It says, but all this was done. Now, now Judas has come. He's brought the... Uh, guard with him. He's brought some of the religious leaders with him to identify Jesus and take Jesus. And as soon as that happens, it says all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. These were the same people that said, though all should disperse, 
I won't. If it means my dying with you, I will do it. You know, we don't deny their love for him. We don't deny their determination to support him. But when difficulty came, they wilted under the pressure due to the weakness of their faith. When we hear people say things, we then measure that against what they actually do. And it's very easy to say what I will do. It's easy to be the Monday morning armchair quarterback who says, you should have done this, or if it were me, here's what I would have done. But the real test in life is, what did I do? And so the only one that we can truly rely upon in having a perfect example of saying what to do and then doing it is our Lord. The perfect example of how to face trials, how to face even death. I want to think about that today. I want to think about it through looking at what Jesus said as he approached his death by looking at the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. And the first one we want to think about is found in Luke 23. And this one deals with praying for the forgiveness of his enemies. Now, Jesus, again, is on the cross. He's been nailed to the cross. Verse 34 of Luke 23, it says, Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. Our Lord taught his disciples of the need to pray for our enemies. Back in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 5, in verses 43 and 44, he says, You have heard that it has been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good for them that hate you. Pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. You know, when we read that, it has to go through our mind to say, well, if Jesus is God who came in the flesh and he knew what was going to happen, was there a moment of reflection then when he said that, that he was thinking about, this is what's going to happen to me. I'm telling them, pray for your enemies. Pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. And I know that's going to happen. I can't answer that, but my mind wonders about those things. My mind wonders about what Jesus said, knowing what was going to happen. In the next chapter, in Matthew chapter 6, he said that we're to forgive people of their trespasses. When he taught the disciples about prayer in Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 9, it says, After this manner, therefore, pray ye, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. For if ye forgive men their 
trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Lest we think what he's saying in verse 12 deals with monetary issues. He says, you have to forgive individuals their trespasses. You can't hold on to those things and use them as a tool to abuse people. He says, you've got to be willing to forgive people of their trespasses, else your father will not forgive you. Jesus lived what he taught even as he was enduring painful death. It's one thing to teach how to live when times are peaceful, but truth is revealed during times of turmoil. And as they cast lots for his clothes, he said, Father, forgive them. The next thing we read in, in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 23, is that Jesus promised paradise to the thief. In verse 43, Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Jesus taught the necessity of believing in him as the Christ. In John's gospel, in John chapter 8 and verse 24, he chastised the Jews because they refused to believe in him. And he said, without believing in him, they could not be saved. John 8, 24, I said unto you that ye shall die in your sins, for if ye believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. Jesus taught in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 10 and in verse 32, that it would be necessary for us to confess him as Christ if we expected him to confess us before our Father in heaven. Matthew 10 verse 32, Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father who is in heaven. And in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 13 in verse 3, Jesus said that we need to repent of our sins if we have any desire to be forgiven of our sins. Luke chapter 13 and in verse 3, when he was talking to the people there, he said, I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. So the idea of believing him to be the Christ, the idea of confessing him as Christ, the idea of repenting of our sins. We find in many respects that this man on the cross did those particular things. Back up with me in Luke's gospel, chapter 23, verse 39, it says, one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him saying, if thou be Christ, save thyself and us. So one of them said, if you really are, then you'll help us. Verse 40, the other answered, rebuking him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? We indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. So he said, we have sinned. This man is a man of God. Lord, remember me. So he recognized Jesus and confessed him and sought pardon from him. And Jesus did not take vengeance on him, but forgave him. 
and shared his blessings with him. Today you will be with me. The next thing we note is that he gave John responsibility for his mother. Again, this is while Jesus is hanging on the cross. What, what things could be going through his mind as he is enduring that pain? Well, it wasn't to just think about himself. Verses 26 and 27 of John's gospel, John chapter 19, when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, behold thy mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her into his own home. Jesus taught on any number of occasions the importance of us honoring our mothers and fathers and family. In Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 15 and verses 3 and 4, Jesus chastised the Jews that were, were complaining that his disciples didn't wash their hands. He said, well, they're violating our traditions, the traditions of our elders they violate. But Jesus said in verse 3, why do you transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? You've made your traditions to be more important to you than the commandments of God. And you will obey your traditions and you ignore God's commandment. Such as, verse 4, honor thy father and thy mother. Jesus said, you've made a tradition that in effect says, I don't have to do that. God said, honor them. You have a tradition that says, I don't need to do that. And so there are any number of uh, events where we could look at in the life of Jesus where he teaches us of the importance of our family relationship, even to the point of saying that, that some relationships we will need to give up if we want to remain faithful unto God. So in Matthew 19, the religious leaders come to Jesus and they say, hey, in effect, can someone get divorced for any reason? And Jesus said, no, you can't. Well, Moses allowed us to do that. And so Jesus said, because of the hardness of your hearts, Moses allowed for it. But from the very beginning, that was never God's intent. Matthew chapter 19, verse 4. Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. Wherefore they are no more two, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. So then Jesus said there is one occasion and one occasion only. And he said, for fornication. Verse 9, I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, shall marry another, committeth adultery. Whoso marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery. Well, the disciples recognized that this was difficult teaching. Difficult teaching sometimes requires sacrifice on our part. Verse 10, his disciples say unto him, If the case of the man be so with his wife, it is not good to marry. Maybe we need to make some choices in life. If I can't do what God says needs to be done the way God says it needs to be done, 
Maybe I need to make some choices that are going to be difficult. And later on in verse 29, Jesus said, Everyone that hath forsaken houses or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life. He was not saying, give up your family. Don't get married. Don't have anything to do with your brothers or sisters. What he was saying was, you've got to put the kingdom first. And when you put the kingdom first, there are going to be sacrifices. So instead of doing things with your family because they've chosen a time that's inconvenient with respect to doing the Lord's will, you're going to have to choose to do the Lord's will. There's going to be some separation there. People who don't put God first don't understand that. They think we should be able to do what we want when we want. But God says, there are things I require of you to be in fellowship with me. You know, Wayne read that uh, verse from 1 John chapter 1, uh, verse 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. We have to walk in his light. That's where he keeps fellowship. That means I've got to stay in a particular area. And if everybody is over here and they're not in that area, I can't go with them. We have to make choices, and those choices require discipline on our part. Jesus loved his mother, and he knew his responsibility to the Father's will. He knew that meant he had to die in order to fulfill the Father's will. And so he gave John a responsibility to take care of his mother. You know, the fact of the matter is that God could do all the things he needs to do by himself. But he chose to give us a part in his plan. And that part means we have to be responsible. So when Jesus gave the care of his mother to John, he gave John a responsibility. The next thing we note is that while Jesus is on the cross, he is crying to the Father. Mark chapter 15 and in verse 34. It says, The ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The Lord's cry to the Father was more about reminding the disciples and reminding those at the cross of the fulfillment of God's word. Psalm 22 verse 1, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from me and from the words of my roaring? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime. And, and when you look at Psalm 22, it's a reference to the death of Jesus on the cross. It was a messianic prophecy foretelling the crucifixion events. So when you look at Psalm, again, 22, and you look at verses 6 through 8. It says, I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men, despised of all the people. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip, they shake the head, saying, He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. 
And when you look at the Gospels, you see this is exactly what these individuals said. Matthew chapter 27, in verses 39 and following, they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads. And then in verse 43, he trusted in God, let him deliver him. So when Jesus was on the cross and he began to use these words, he was making reference back to a psalm that talked about the unfolding of these events, the fulfillment of God's word, that they would crucify him, Psalm 22, beginning in verse 15, my strength is dried up like a potsherd, my tongue cleaveth to my jaws, thou hast brought me into the dust of death. The dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones. They look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. They, in looking at this particular psalm, it would be difficult for them not to have seen the fulfillment in it. Uh, in verse in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 27, and in verses 34 and 35, they gave him vinegar to drink mingled with gall. They crucified him, parted his garments, casting lots. So in looking at Psalm 22, in thinking about what Jesus was saying here and crying unto the Father, he was both crying unto the Father, but also reminding them about the Father's will. He taught that our Father knows our needs before we even ask for those things. So in, in Matthew chapter 6, when he said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. In verse 32 there in Matthew 6, he said, For your heavenly Father knoweth what you have need of before you even ask. Our heavenly Father's promise is that he will never leave us nor forsake us. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Hebrews chapter 13 and in verse 5. And while he was on the cross, Jesus knew that the cross was not the end. The cross was the means for providing the end. John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down. And I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. We must believe the Father's words, even in our darkest moments. We must believe that He cares for us, that He listens for us, and that He is with us. Jesus said, I thirst. John chapter 19 and in verse 28 says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Again, this is a reference to a messianic prophecy. Uh, this one is found in Psalms chapter 69 and verses 16 through 21. It says, Hear me, O Lord, for thy loving kindness is good. Turn unto me according to the multitude of thy tender mercies. 
Hide not thy face from thy servant, for I am in trouble. Hear me speedily. Draw nigh unto my soul and redeem it. Deliver me because of mine enemies. Thou hast known my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. Mine enemies are all before me. Reproach hath broken my heart and I am full of heaviness. I looked for some to take pity, but there was none and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me also gall for meat and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. It is a testimony to Jesus that he would believe the words of the Father even as he hung on the cross, even in a time of difficulty. Of course, the irony in all of this is in order to die for us, he had to be on the cross and he had to make reference to the concept of thirsting. All the way back in John chapter 4, he talked about being the water of life. When he spoke to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, beginning in verse 11. The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself, and his children, and his cattle? Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whoso drinketh at the, of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. The only way for us to have that water of everlasting life was for him to be on the cross. And in being on the cross, he would petition the Father because he said, I thirst. He was willing to suffer and die for us, trusting the Father's promises in being fulfilled. Again, we note in John chapter 19 and in verse 30, Jesus simply said, it is finished. His persecution and his death accomplished all that the Father desired to be accomplished. On the night of his betrayal, as he prayed to the Father, in John chapter 17, verse 4, he says, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. We've noted any number of times that when God speaks, the moment he speaks, it is. Even when he talks about something to be done in the future, oftentimes we've noted, in, especially in the Old Testament, that God, in speaking about the future, uses present tense words. And Jesus does the exact same thing. He's yet to be taken. He's yet to be abused. He's yet to suffer on the cross and die and be resurrected. But he said, all things have been accomplished. All that you sent me to do has been finished. And while he was on the cross, he said, it is finished. What was finished? Well, man's betrayal, because he had spoken about that, spoken about the fact that they would, the disciples would depart him, but also in dealing with the fact that the, uh, the Jews would persecute him, but specifically thinking about Peter and how Peter, even though he proclaimed that 
Although all the others would depart, he would not. Verse 75 of Matthew 26, Peter remembered the word of the Lord, which said unto him, Before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. And he went out and wept bitterly. Matthew 27, dealing with Judas, he said, I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See thou to that. Betrayal. Betrayal by those who were close to him. What else was finished? The envy of the religious leaders was finished. Verse 18 of Matthew 27. He knew that for envy they delivered him. This is speaking of Pilate as to why they wanted, why the Jews were crying for Jesus to be crucified. Pilate knew that their only reason for wanting Jesus crucified was for envy, that Jesus was not guilty of anything. But in thinking about bringing it maybe a little bit closer to us, what was finished was God's plan of redemption. John chapter 3 and in verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believed in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And in fulfilling the Father's plan of redemption, what he did was to defeat our enemy and by defeating our enemy to also defeat death. The Hebrew writer said in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. Jesus left nothing undone. So when he said all was accomplished, everything was. When he said it is finished, it was all finished. And it's shameful to think that there are people today who still preach and teach that Jesus didn't do everything that he was supposed to do. There are people who teach that in coming to establish the kingdom, the Jews rejected him so he couldn't do it. So instead, he substituted the church. But then that makes not only Jesus a liar, but ineffective. If Jesus could not come 2,000 years ago to establish the kingdom, how can we believe that he will have any greater power in the future to do that? If man 2,000 years ago could stop God from doing what God wanted to do, how could we believe that God will be able to do what he wants to do today or in the future? Either Jesus spoke the truth or he was a liar. If he is a liar, we have no hope. There's no one that we can depend upon. But if he spoke the truth, then he did exactly what he said he came to do. And we are the ones who are wrong in our misunderstanding. He said, it is finished. And then we, we think of his final cry to the Father in Luke's Gospel, Luke verse 23, excuse me, Luke chapter 23, verse 46. So when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Having said thus, he gave up the ghost. The, the ultimate example of Jesus is that he trusted the Father even in death. It was possible 
for Jesus to come off the cross, it was possible and well within his power for every nail to pop out, every scar to be healed, for him to come down and stand before them. When he was taken that night in the garden in Matthew 26, and he tells Peter to put up your sword. Remember what it was that he said there? He said, know you not. He said in verse 53, that I cannot now pray to my father and he shall presently give me more than 12 legions of angels. I mean, 12 legions? We're talking about thousands and thousands, he said. I could have thousands and thousands of angels at my command right now. But then he said, how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled? He had to die. It wasn't enough for him to be brutally beaten and publicly humiliated and put up on the cross and then hang there for a little bit of time and then say, okay, that's enough. No, he had to die. And so we have him saying, into thy hands I commend thy spirit. Uh, again, this was something that the, the psalmist foretold in Psalm 31. Beginning in verse 1. In thee, O Lord, do I put my trust. Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me in thy righteousness. Bow down thine ear to me. Deliver me speedily. For thou my strong rock, for an house of defense to save me. For thou art my rock and my fortress. Therefore, for thy name's sake, lead me and guide me. Pull me out of the net that they have laid privately for me, for thou art my strength. Into thy hand I commit my spirit. Thou hast redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. Jesus teaches through his own life that we can depend fully on the Father to do exactly what needs to be done. And when Peter was inspired to write his epistle, he reminded us of that, also pointing the way for Jesus in being our perfect example. Verse 23 of 1 Peter chapter 2, Who when he is reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. In the next chapter, 1 Peter 3 verse 12, it says, For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. Jesus trusted the Father all the way up to and beyond the moment of death. Well, in looking at all of this, it's wonderful to, to see the example of Jesus. It's, it's wonderful for us to recognize that he taught something and then even as he was dying, he had the strength of conviction, the love of the Father, and the love of us to do all of those things. What application can we make of it today? Well, first and foremost, we've got to be willing to forgive. We're not hanging on a cross. We might have some inconvenient thing happen to us in life. Maybe someone betrays us. Maybe someone betrays a strong confidence Maybe someone betrays us in a very intimate and painful way. But we need to be willing to forgive them. What about sharing our blessings? Just as Jesus did with the, with the thief on the cross. You know, 
I don't know about you, but uh, I deal with, I say deal with, uh, through Facebook, I'm aware of brethren in different parts of the world, specifically the Philippines and in India. And as many of you know, I, I have a class on most Tuesday evenings with these brethren in India. And they're always contacting me, letting me know that there's this need or that need. And they're always asking me, can, if you can't help, can you find someone that will? And just the other day, this one fellow just said, we're looking to build a well in our village. He said, we don't have any water. Uh, is there any way that you can help with that? And I just think to myself, wow, you know, I don't think about that. I don't think about getting up in the morning when I, uh, one of the first things I do every morning is I have a large glass of water. I know as we get older, you're supposed to drink all this water. So I try, first thing I do when I get up in the morning, I have a big old 16 ounce glass of water and then I have another one at lunch. So you know, I go out and I put the faucet on and I put the glass under. I don't go, man, I wonder if I've got enough water in my well. I wonder if there's gonna be water next week. You know, because I know even if there's something that goes wrong, I can go buy water somewhere. But there are people in the world that they can't do that. There's no Walmart or Dollar Tree or IGA or whatever we have where they can go and just buy some drinking water. They don't have that. Can we share our blessings with others, whether we're talking about the gospel and spiritual things or whether we're talking about material things? Do we teach and are we responsible that I have a relationship with the Lord and it doesn't depend on anyone else and it doesn't go through anyone else? It is my relationship that I'm going to be judged on. My relationship that determines whether or not I am faithful to him. Am I, am, am I someone who regularly prays to the Father. Do I believe that He watches over me and that He cares for me such that even in my most difficult times, I will look to Him? Do I trust His Word during trials? Again, it's one thing when life unfolds the way we want, but what about when it doesn't? And God says, you still need to continue going this way. You still need to do these things that I've asked you to do, even though the end result isn't what you want. When, when I get a job and, and my employer says, well, I need you to work Sundays. And you say, I can't. That's my day of worship. And then the employer says, you either work or you don't get the job. What do you do then? What do you do if your family needs that money? What do you do if... That's the only job that comes along. What do you do if you're in debt when that happens? Do you say to yourself, well, I'll do this until something better comes along? Or do you say, I'm going to trust God and continue doing His way in believing that something will unfold that will provide for me and continue to honor Him? I'm telling you, I've known many people in my life that say, well, I'll do this now. And they don't change. I'll do it now. Well, now I can't give it up. Now I've got that income coming in. Now I'm getting used to the fact that I'm not there. We miss you when you're not here. This is a family unit. You, you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talks about a body. 
where every joint, every part of the body needs the other part of the body. When you're not here, it's not just an empty space. It's we're missing part of our family. Do I trust God to do things his way and accept the outcome that he provides? Am I willing to live faithfully even to death, even if living faithfully is what brings me closer to death? Oh yeah, it's easy to say I can do all these things when life is wonderful. But what if I'm in a place where I'm now being tormented, mocked, made fun of? Again, we have difficulties in our country, but when you make a comparison to other places in the world, they're inconveniences. Nobody is keeping you from getting in through those doors. Nobody's going to come to your home and drag you out and bring you here. No one's going to stop you from getting in your car and going somewhere if you want to go. We don't have to deal with things that people in the rest of the world deal with. And yet, how heartwarming it is when we read about these events in India or Africa or the Philippines or these other places where people that don't have what we have, when they get the gospel, they dramatically change their life to conform to it. It, in some respects, puts us to shame, but it also reminds us that sometimes we need to take a step back and maybe give up some of what we have to reclaim some of what we might have lost spiritually. Am I someone who relies on God's power? In other words, I'm willing to do these things both in good times and bad, when it's easy and when it's hard. Even in death, Jesus teaches us about the Father's will. These seven sayings confirm that he believed what he taught as truth and he demonstrated it even while he was being persecuted and dying on the cross. He did not excuse himself and he didn't deny the teachings because it was inconvenient. Hopefully when we think about these sayings, let us think about his perfect example of obedience and determine in our life that we're going to follow it. Of course, in anything, in any aspect of life, knowing what to do and doing it, it's not always easy. You know, it's one thing to know. If, if simply knowing something were what we had to do, then the world wouldn't be full of failures. How many times do we see an athlete taken as the number one pick? And everybody thinks he's going to be the next Cy Young winner. He's going to be the next, you know, uh, 30 points a game and 20 rebounds and uh, 18 assists. He's going to be the next Super Bowl quarterback. And they fail. It's because knowing what to do and then doing it are two different things. If just reading about something were enough, our libraries would be full and so would our people. But just reading isn't enough. You've got to make application of it. And that application deals with both knowledge and desire and a willingness. And so when the gospel is preached, we have to believe that Jesus is Christ, but it's more than that. He said, we've got to confess him as Christ. We've got to repent of our sins. I've got to admit that I need the gospel. 
And I've got to admit that I have to change. Not others, but, but me. And then being baptized for the remission of our sins. God's promise is once we do that, he'll take away all of our sins by the blood of Jesus Christ, cleanse us spotless and free and make us his. But then he says, now my word has to guide you. That's the starting line. We put one toe over when we're converted. Now the rest of our life is to get to the finish line. It's not just about getting that toe over the starting line. It's about making it to and crossing the finish line. What about you? Can we help you to obey the gospel? If we can, please let us know while we stand and while we sing.